HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. You are listening to Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric and Wythe Marshall. On Fields, we bring you stories about the future, present, and past of urban agriculture, and in general, explore really interesting concepts and meet lots of fascinating people who get up every day and grow food in and around cities starting with the city we live in, New York City. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. Hey, welcome to Fields Podcast. Today we're talking with my co-host, Melissa Metric. And we are going to be talking about her work as someone who not only is an urban farmer and gardener, but teaches urban farming and gardening. Now, this conversation was recorded at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, but we hadn't launched the show yet. So now we're releasing it as an extra fun episode because it's still really relevant and interesting. And it's kind of a weird time to look back and say, you know, how did we respond when COVID first hit? And how did we as educators uh, and people who are involved with other growers and sort of thinking about uh, where urban agriculture is headed, uh, respond to, you know, the pandemic in uh, Melissa's case in really creative ways. So it's still a great conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, If you like Fields, please subscribe. I'm Wythe Marshall and... I'm Melissa Metric. And we're going to talk today about some recent happenings, some newsworthy items, fill you in on what we've been up to in this pandemic era of urban agriculture. So Melissa, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, again, I'm Melissa Metric. I teach a class called Introduction to Urban Agriculture at NYU. It's part of the Nutrition and Food Studies Department. And then I also manage the farm at NYU, which is called the NYU Urban Farm Lab. Which is super cool. It's like in the middle of Manhattan on a busy street. Uh, but you grow all kinds of interesting things and in heritage grains. Um, but also... Are you currently managing it due to the crisis? Has that changed? Uh, That's kind of really interesting. So right now we can't have any students on the farm. I just, because the NYU campus is closed, I just let the residents know because the farm is right behind a residential building for NYU faculty and they have their own plots on the farm. And so I just let them know that I, we didn't find it to be safe for them to go out there yet. 
just with points of contact and stuff. So they're not able to go up there. So, um, but I do have plans for the farm and I asked if I could still be out there. And they're like, if you feel okay with that, you feel safe enough to do that. I guess so. So, um, so you are currently still like the only farmer at NYU in a way. Yeah. I'm always the only farmer. Yeah. <laughs> no, but there is, uh, there is also, um, so George Ray's kind of runs that NYU, um, grounds. Um, and he's been doing more like edible plantings or he's been trying to do more edible plantings on campus and stuff like that. Um, but yes, I am the NYU urban farm lab manager. So yeah. Cool. Well, that's greatest city in the world. No. Yeah. That's, <laughs> it's very weird. It's very weird that NYU has a, has a farm. Um, it's, it's fairly small. It, it looks reminiscent of a, of a garden. Um, but you know, you like you are a farmer and you have, uh, the space that to work with, um, undergraduates, but also, like you said, that the, the faculty have plots and then you yourself have this ongoing relationship with that land. But in the middle of the pandemic, it's like back to just like you and this land. <laughs> so it's a very weird kind of imaginary in my head. Um, yeah. The difference between a class and just like one person, you know, in that space. Yeah. I mean, um, so we've been thinking about it. And honestly, I haven't been on the space. So um, I will be on the space. Like I'll we, I will go back to the space soon, but I've even been kind of staying away just because the, you know, the whole New York pause, whatever it's called, the shelter in place. Yeah. And I'm, I'm respecting that. Right yeah. Now. Just to get there from Brooklyn, you'd have to take the subway and it's, yeah, it would involve lots of potential well, people touching. I, yeah. Well, no, actually before, um, <laughs> before everything closed down, I kind of knew it was going to close down. And so I biked to Manhattan, which was six miles from where yeah. I live in Dennis park. Um, I actually, I knew my office was going to close down. So I took my camping backpack and I took down this miniature greenhouse in my office and I shoved it in my camping backpack. And then I biked to the farm and I prepped all the plots for the residents, so like faculty residents, um, just so it was prepared for them when they could garden and if they wanted to. Later on, I, I we kind of made the, de the decision for them not to garden, but they they possibly will this season. We'll see what happens. And then I biked and then I prepped all the beds and then I biked home with this like crazy backpack <laughs> with like things sticking out of it. So I biked 12 miles and, uh, that's what I'm going to do when I'm tending the farm this summer, when I feel it being safe, like when I feel like it kind of comes down a little bit, I'm going to just start biking there and back. Oh. So well, that's, yeah, that's, that's uh, impressive. That's real escape from New York, you know, eco punk kind of vibe. Um, cause I'm imagining in your office. So, so this is another status update question and then we'll dive into, you know, other, other people's victory gardens, quote unquote, in that phrase, that's going to be something we sort of focus on. Um, but do, are you still running the mushroom club? Are there mushrooms growing in your office? Uh, first of all, okay. So, you know, all joking aside, I'm not the only farmer at NYU. My whole job is to cultivate farmers and to work within a community and uh, more I, yeah, the idea of cultivating farmers is the idea in general. And um, the mushroom club is not mine. So the students came to me and they asked if they could start a mycelium club at NYU because they took my intro to Urbac class. And I had some guest speakers from mushroom companies like Smallhold. And they inspired my students and they're like, I want to learn how to grow mushrooms. So they're like, we experiment. And I was like, yeah, sure. I just found this greenhouse that we haven't used. So we could set it up in my office. 
there'll be a little grow tent. And then we started growing mushrooms. But actually what I took down was the mushroom grow grow tent. So that's what I'm using presently to grow starts in my backyard for the farm. Got it. They wouldn't have access to it anyways. And actually that was part of the whole process of just like the office is about to shut down. I knew it was going to shut down. I had these like mushroom bags and like, you know, humidifiers filled with water. And I had all these, like, they had all of these like experimental mushroom uh, jars in like a cabinet. And so I had to like clear everything out, empty everything out, like put everything into the compost, um, pack everything, clean it all up. So it was kind of this like crazy thing of like, Oh my God, I don't know when I'm going to come back. Took some books, packed everything, excuse me, packed everything up washed everything, sanitized everything, and then went to the farm and prepped all these beds. It was kind of insane. Yeah, it's crazy. And you can't be the only um, educator who's doing that right now. You know, there must be lots of, of teachers, professors, people who are thinking about like, oh man, I run this gardening group or farm um, you know, service and I have to suddenly like break it down and what gets distributed. And we've talked about, you know, seeds, which we should come back to in a, in a future talk. Um, so this is all super interesting. So that's a great like introduction to some of your work. Um, I think, you know, you brought up uh, that, that we could talk about today, just how this actually is not new that, that people want to grow food in urban areas um, and that that often spikes during a crisis. Yeah. So, yeah, I was hoping today you could say a little more about how um, urban agriculture in a time of crisis is, uh, is nothing new, that this is actually kind of a pattern and people's interest in growing during the COVID pandemic um, sort of mirrors or might be different from, you know, earlier um, moments of crisis when people started gardens in cities. The first class that I teach in general, like in my, in my intro to urban class, uh, we go over the history of urban farming for the past hundred years, mostly focusing on New York state and also in the United States. But we start in the 1890s and we go towards like, we go to the present, but that was pre COVID-19. <laughs> and I would even joke of like, you know, we're not in a crisis now. Right. And like with climate change and everything else that was going on, you know, whatever. Anyways, but now we are truly in a crisis. Yeah. We kind of go through a bunch of these articles and just like, when was, when is urban agriculture or, or home growing pushed by the federal government, pushed by grassroots organizations? It's usually during times of crisis. When is there funding? When is there, you know, uh, funding for programming and all these other things. It's like, if you think about it, 1890s, we, in New York City, we have this huge influx of immigrants. Um, they don't have, there's not like a lot of jobs around or a lot of people are coming in. Um, and so they started the vacant lot gardening program, um, where, um, since, uh, there was so much poverty and so much unemployment that people needed to eat. So they're like, there's all these vacant lots. Um, why don't we give this to the people who need it and have them farm it? And but what happened was as Manhattan started developing, they were taking those vacant lots away and people being pushed out of boroughs, which was uh, actually like really hard to get to blah, blah, blah. You go towards world war one, the first kind of like victory gardens, even though I think that was coined in world war two, I'm not totally sure about that, but that's when like, the federal government started pushing, you know, people to grow their own food, then there's a great depression, right? So, uh, again, there is this like federal push for 
you know, again, during times of crisis, World War II, that is when Victory Gardens really, really got pushed. And I actually just, I kind of wanted to mention this because there, uh, with COVID-19 happening, there's been this push to bring back Victory Gardens, but some organizations, especially like Leah Penniman brought this light from Soul Fire Farm, that Victory Gardens is actually not the best term because it has a direct connection to Japanese citizens or two-thirds were Japanese citizens being being incarcerated into military camps during World War II. And many of those were actually farmers, 40% of them, or I think it was, yeah, 45% of them owned farm and they were producing tons of crops. And once they were put into these um, military camps, we had food shortages. And that's when the federal government started pushing these victory gardens. That, and also, of course, because they had to feed the military overseas and things like that. But it does have this correlation to incarcerating Japanese um, citizens and just um, Japanese populations on the West Coast. And just the language of military and empire. So, like, victory implies an enemy that you're going to defeat, whereas arguably, um, with especially a pandemic, that kind of a crisis isn't really about defeating an enemy as much as we might hate the virus. Yeah. It's a natural phenomenon. Um, and I, I, I do think that, yeah, there's something a little bit um, cringy about saying uh, victory when you could say, you know, this is a community gardener. This is a different kind of effort that highlights, um, you know, a different kind of uh, social good as opposed yeah. to military victory. Um, and yeah, it is, it was first used in World War One, but yeah, it was definitely uh, pushed really hard in World War Two. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's super interesting that, that, yeah, that there's a sort of critique even of the term, although of course we like the idea of people getting into gardening, uh, and, yeah. you know, so yeah. it's a kind of, um, double-edged sword. I know we talked about this a little before about how, um, that is actually part of the problem is when everyone gets into something, it's kind of a fad that can also, um, have some downsides. So of course, again, we, we want people to garden and, and farm, but you know, what are, uh, how, how would you bring this forward to today? So how do you see, um, this new wave of kind of quote unquote victory gardening playing out? You know, what are some reactions you've had as a professional who's kind of observing yeah. this, you know, reading the news? Yeah. So I think the biggest issue with all of that, with like this new push for all these people to garden and also just like all these people hoarding seeds, like uh, you talk to seed companies and they've had a 300% increase in sales and like seed companies can't keep up with the demand. And so it's just, it's kind of insane. And the reason why I'm being a curmudgeon about it is um, I don't actually know the article or whatever, but I think with Victory Gardens after like during um, the wars after the first year, most people didn't know what they were doing and they weren't that successful. And so, you know, they're using up all these resources and I should be a jerk because everybody should have rights and resources and access and stuff like that. But it's, it's like they lose interest. So I think that's the idea of the, the bad aspect of it, of how do we do this in a sense where it's like, we're learning our lesson. You know, like if we're, if we have a new normal, if we're starting again, or we have to, how are we going to do this in an intelligent way where we're just not treating it as a commodity, you know, where we're just not buying, 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 and then like using up all these resources and then walking away from it when things go back to normal, if they ever do. So I think that's where I'm kind of coming from, where it's like, I, my job 
has been to teach people how to garden. That is my passion, right? But I want to teach people in a way that is sustainable. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think you're absolutely right. And the history shows that, that most of the gardens were abandoned after the first year. So there was this huge boom in gardening um, during World War II. And then uh, people found it was just difficult and it, they didn't build a social movement around it. So it was kind of um, tied to uh, families' experience of the war as opposed to re- families um, really rethinking the long-term issues like uh, the environment or diet, you know, and I think that's where we're at today. We're in a different world. We're not in that early consumeristic um, society. We're in this late, hopefully moving toward post-consumerism kind of society. And hopefully, I almost think of it as like, your job isn't really to teach people how to garden as much as teach them why to garden. Uh, And certainly people, you know, other um, really inspiring experts like Leah Penniman do a good job of that as well, showing that growing your own food could be empowering for lots of reasons that go a little bit beyond like an immediate crisis. Um, So I think that's like really important, not just the skills. I mean, of course, the skills also important, but getting to that why and, and thinking about socially what it means to have some control over your food or control over the land. Yeah. And also just working within a community. I think that's a key. Like, you know, in the 1970s, when New York City almost went bankrupt, literally the Bronx was on fire. Um, All these buildings burned down. There was all these vacant lots. Mostly um, people of color were left in New York City and populations of socioeconomic status. Um, because they were redlined in the suburbs and things like that. But that's where a lot of the community garden movement started in New York City. And so that had this grassroots aspect. And a lot of those community gardens lasted, maybe not all of them because they got developed and things like that, but just like having roots within a community and having people keeping it going. And then the other thing that I was just thinking about is also the idea of instead of taking resources, I guess the whole concept is to show people how to produce resources or put things back into that almost like bank or like not bank. That's, that's, that's the opposite word I want to, but like, uh, like for example, seeds, if everybody's buying seeds and they're kind of, if these seed companies can't keep up with seed, are they going to sell out of certain varieties? Is our biodiversity going to go down? Because all these people are buying seeds, they don't know what they're doing. And then all of a sudden, you know, these are just like, who knows if this is going to happen. But these are just like, I I don't know anything about this, but these are my larger ideas. So it's like, do we actually have to teach people more how to seed save now? So they don't do this. They don't hoard. They like, again, what you're talking about, become more self-reliant. And Right. And and I think it goes to even what is... um you know, in a classic social science move, what goes into that, that term, what goes into that category. So urban gardening could be a category where up until this crisis for a long time, a lot of people have practiced as you go to the store. So, you know, you go to, in maybe in Brooklyn, somewhere like Crest, um, and you get seeds and, or you order them online from Johnny's or whatever it is. And you buy a bunch of stuff, you buy maybe even plastic stuff, but you know, maybe you buy all natural, you know, wooden or clay pots and whatnot. Um, and it metal implements and you, you garden, but it's, it's sort of like at the end of the season, you might just buy more of that stuff and you're not necessarily practicing seed saving because seeds are frankly pretty cheap and saving them might be sort of a pain. And you're more interested in just the fun of producing the vegetables. Whereas I think what you're talking about again, is that shift, not just from like, how do you grow some vegetables being the only thing in the category, but the category can itself grow. And I think, yeah, Leah Penniman does a great job of that with farming, where farming can mean more than just literally, how do you grow food? It's also stewarding community. Um, and that's pretty in keeping with 
with a lot of historical understandings of farming. So I think similarly with urban gardening, it could be a lot about a lot more than just um, making sure plants, you know, go through certain developmental stages and get the food that you want. It could also be about right seed saving, working with your neighbors. Um, managing the soil. And yeah, that's where, you know, I, I love talking about this stuff because, you know, it sort of expands in my mind, even, you know, what I'm going to do with my windowsill, you know. This episode is brought to you by The Great Grow Along, a three-day hosted virtual garden festival connecting you with the influencers, tastemakers, and cutting-edge content of today's gardening world. The Great Grow Along will feature 40-plus sessions, on topics ranging from houseplants to DIY landscaping. New plant parents and first-time gardeners will gain practical advice and creative inspiration from celebrated garden experts and industry leaders. Costing $29.95, tickets allow attendees to mix and match a wide range of sessions or choose to follow one of the conference's six tracks, which include edible gardening, urban gardening, pollinators and plants, DIY landscaping, House plants and dig deeper. The Great Grow Along will take place March 19th through 21st, 2021. Sign up at greatgrowalong.com. like brings back like what I tell my students because we literally had to stop halfway through the semester like right when they were supposed to go out to the farm because spring is happening right now and um so we were supposed to go to the farm the next week or two after COVID-19 happened and we had to put all of our classes online and do them remotely and so I had to figure out okay they don't have they may not have any supplies at home how are we gonna actually make this work I can't go out and tell them to buy all this stuff. I mean, I can, but like, we're also going through a recession. Who knows who lost their job? Who knows what, you know, and also is it right to, for me to have them order all this stuff and then those essential workers have to work harder, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I had to rethink it all in the sense of like, let's go way back, not way back, but let's use recycled materials for planters and pots and egg, what are they called? Like egg cases to start seedlings in. Yeah, egg cards to start. Can you walk me through, like, I'm a student in your class, COVID breaks, um, just as we're about to go to the farm and and start gardening. Uh, So what are you doing? You're no longer bringing students to the urban farm lab, but you are still teaching them. What are you teaching? Well, it's, uh, it's a challenge. Honestly, it's I, my job is also to keep them interested and excited in it. And the first thing that I told them was the way people are the most creative is when they have limitations. So we're just going to have to get creative. You think of any good artist, they have limitations. They're going to be more creative because that's what you have to do. You have to literally think outside the box. So we, what I started doing was like, yeah, of course, like looking at recycled materials and stuff. And this isn't new. People have been doing this forever, like growing, growing things out of their milk cartons, out of their egg crates, blah, 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 yogurt containers. Um, but I actually, I've never done this before. I've, I've heard about it, but like taking food scraps. So the ends of celery or the ends of lettuce or scallions, um, that still have the roots on them and actually putting them in water and regrowing them. So I've been kind of pushing them towards what do we literally look at as waste and how are we going to start there? 
and turn that into a resource. So how are we going to put our food scraps, either regrow from them or compost them and actually make a resource since we can't get compost right now? I mean, maybe we could go to Home Depot and get some crappy stuff, but I don't want that. Yeah, the city compost um, program has shut down, which is unfortunate. So I think that's a really interesting step, starting with waste they probably have. They have some scallions. And also thinking about, yeah, creating that soil. Um, So, yeah, so what what are some of the experiments that have been successful? Or how have your students gotten creative uh, with their growing? I mean, I think that's that's kind of the key of just, like, growing from, you know, certain waste materials, and that's actually working. So that's, like, part of their growing project. Um, Some of them have ordered seeds. Um, it's kind of funny. Every class I use my dining room table and I cover it in a drop cloth and I have all of this crazy stuff all over the place. And my housemates are just like, they're like, what is going on here? And I have like a bowl of soil and I just turned our tea kettle into a watering can. And I'm like stealing the the half gallon milk container to see if I could make my own watering can. And like, it's just like, it's a little bit nuts and I'm, and I'm figuring it out, you know, I'm figuring it out as we, as we go where, um, this next class, I'm actually going to have a guest speaker, Candace Thompson, who does curb, which is, what is it, the, it's like urban resilience banquet city, urban resilience, I forget this called, but, um, she's actually going to teach the students how to, how to make their own, what is it? It's not canning, but preservation. So maybe we'll make pickles or sauerkraut or something like that. So I think that's the other step. I've just gone completely like kind of DIY with them and rogue and just be like, okay, we're going to, we're going to go back to our punk days and, you know, grow things out of our waste and compost and preserve and use recycled materials. And, um, the other thing is for their final project, they usually have them take a real life space and design a garden or a farm for that space. And so now I tell them to do that where they are currently. So at their parents' space or if their building has a rooftop. So, so that's the other thing in hope that they will actually do it this time. I was like, listen, guys, this is what I said to them last class. I was like, you have plenty of time. You might be stuck there for a while. How are you going to make your backyard cool? Come on. Don't you want to have fun in your backyard? How are you going to make this like your dream backyard? How are you actually going to make yourself have a good summer? Design this in a really smart way and make a really cool space that you could grow food from. So yeah. well, that's awesome. Yeah, that's uh, I, I really like that this <laughs> this pandemic really um, puts an exclamation point on some of the things you already sort of are, always do. Um, which is try to get them to focus on upcycling waste and um, that design element of like what what does a good you know urban garden or farm look like? But now in this case, as you said, it's like well, really the ball's in your court because you probably actually want this space now um, more than maybe you know many of the students usually would engage in a practical you know way um, with that like design build process. I'm glad you shouted out Candace Thompson and the Collaborative Urban Resilience Banquets. Um, it's super cool. And we're going to, um, it'd be great to talk to her at some point um, as well. I know you, you guys know each other um, and her work is fantastic. I mean, for myself, I haven't been teaching this term and I don't, I think it's it's interesting to think about that that whole challenge. I've talked with a lot of my, my friends who teach um, the kinds of classes we normally teach, but now online. Um, but I think with anything practical, it's just like, it's, it's so much easier with a discipline uh, like anthropology or history, but it's so much um, 
of the work of farming is obviously hands-on. It, it sort of feels a little bit impossible, but what you said is really interesting and inspiring. So um, shouts out to that. I, I will say in terms of my work for Cornell as a researcher, you know, I research um, workforce development for vertical farming, essentially, and this question of what, how should vocational curricula change so that, um, you know, college systems can respond to this perceived need for more people who can grow soil free using high technology in a city. Um, and these are sort of Venn diagrams They're, they don't all mean the same thing, but I think in general, there's a lot of interest in these methods. And so, um, you know, how do we sort of update curricula? Um, and a large part of that is the same struggle is, you know, colleges like to do online learning, but there is a barrier where, um, it feels like we need to have um, regional centers where learners have to go and actually grow stuff um, with an expert who can then sort of say, yeah, you grew that well, or here's how you can improve. Uh, so that's definitely something where we're in the middle of in this research process, really thinking through like, what can you do online? What can't you do? Um, and that was all pre-COVID. So COVID hitting it again puts an exclamation point on my like day job in a way, because it sort of feels like, well, how much of the online stuff can we get going and keep working on, even though we know we can't do some of the hands-on um, activities that we'd really love to. Yeah. I, and one more thing on that note with the focus of like indoor growing, everybody's stuck indoors and not all people have outdoor areas. Right. So I've also had to kind of re-up my class with students who don't have access to the outdoors, you know? So it's like, okay, you don't have access outdoors. How can you build a system indoors? I was literally talking to a student today and I was like, okay, well, maybe you could do deep water culture where you take a tub of water, you put some styrofoam on it. I know it's not easy, this easy PS, but I was like, you put some styrofoam on it that floats, you poke some holes in it, you get a sponge, you poke a hole in a sponge and you start growing plants. <laughs> like, you know, like, like just, and I was like, you're going to need to get a air bubbler or circulate that water somehow. And of course some food for the plants, but like, and grow lights, but it's kind of interesting how I've also, this has made me shift in the way of like really thinking about access and how to ha get people these materials and access of space, access of materials, access of food in general, like seeds. So yeah just kind of circling back to that like idea of like indoor learning, like learning about indoor grow um, practices and stuff like that as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think this uh, sketches out a lot of the spaces, the places we're going to go, especially when we begin to bring in our expert um, interviewees, our friends, you know, our, our colleagues and collaborators. Um, we're going to talk about seeds. We're talking about food sovereignty, um, you know, re reparative farming, we're also going to talk about indoor ag and sort of technical aspects of agriculture that are shifting or that people are excited about and the reasons why, some of which is cannabis and now some of which is, yeah, very much tied into this question of resilience or sort of a libertarian, you know, homesteading ethos or, you know, food sovereignty and taking back control of, of production from people who maybe are, are benefiting by, by always selling you your food. And, you know, in a, in a simple way, uh, a lot of what I do is, you know, look at the history of some of these things I just mentioned. And I have to say, I have to shout out based on what you're saying, uh, one, this book that always really inspires me when I look at it is uh, called Chemical Gardening for the Amateur, Gardening Without Soil Made Easy, um, which is uh, from 1939. So it's from even before um, that big second wave of Victory Gardens in World War II. Uh, but it's by um, this scientist uh, is agronomist named Victor Tijans. And it starts um, really with this simple experiment where he says, you know, get a basically um, a paper towel and make it wet and put a seed on there. And then talks about what you can grow um, starting without soil 
and what, how you add nutrients and how you can transplant um, plants in a home environment. And this is for someone, you know, this is for the amateur. So it's for the average reader in 1939. And we can talk about who that imagined reader is, which is not necessarily everyone, but it is, it's written in a very sort of friendly, like um, simple way. Um, and it has these great illustrations and it just, it strikes me that so much of this is the stuff that's going around on Instagram or Reddit or that, yeah, you're, you're innovating ways to teach through zoom with, you know, college students in New York and thinking about what the average college student in New York has lying around, you know, egg cartons. Um, but they're so, not even in New York. Any, yeah. They're not even, even in New York. They're in Texas. Actually I did have, and I should let you go, but I did have a soil scientist on Anna uh, Pulseva who teaches at Brooklyn college. She also teaches at NYU. And she was really innovative because we're like, what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to teach a soil class? We usually have like, how do we make soil interesting, which we're good at. But she's like, okay, ask all your students to see if they have vinegar and if they have baking soda. And then we're going to test the acidity and if they have soil lying around soil in their plant pots, soil in their backyard. And we're actually going to test the acidity of their soil. So we did that. So we had everybody get soil samples and we did one sample with vinegar in it. And that shows if your soil is alkaline or not, if it bubbles. And then one soil sample with um, baking soda. And if that bubbles with water, then it's acidic. So it's just like, so it's, it's, it's like kind of going back to third grade. Like that's what we're doing here. <laughs> that's awesome though. No, that's really great to, to maintain that conversation and keep that class alive. Um, in a way that I would have expected that you'd be a little more down, you know, given that you teach gardening and farming and COVID has meant that we can't kind of congregate and do these outdoor activities. Um, so that's, that's, that's rad. So let's, let's wrap up this conversation. Um, Victory Gardens, the idea, kind of cool, but yeah, there are some um, issues to think about, not only the term, but um, right, how do you keep the social movement alive or really um, transform a kind of crisis or reaction into a positive, lasting social movement? That's something um, that's a big question mark that I think we'll, we'll return to. Final thoughts, Melissa, on this topic? Just that I'm not really a curmudgeon. I want everybody to grow food. <laughs> I just want them right. to do it in a, in a well-thought-out, strategic way. Oh yeah. You're just, you're an interesting intersection of like cool, but also kind of, you know, homey, like, you know, you're a farmer, but you're like a rocker who wants to be ahead of the curve. So I think that's just a, a, that's that tension, you know, exploding. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Warner. And another big thanks to Liam Warner for the music on this episode. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.